Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Hey Kerwin, where you have the questions and I give the answers. First, what do we got? We got uh, Winkle256. Winkle. Hello, Winkle. Uh, from, on Instagram, uh, what do you do if your partner's goals uh, are in conflict with your own? Uh, do you have any advice? Yeah, of course I do. Uh, I have lived that scenario many times before. Um, here's the thing. There's, there, one of the things that I've worked out is very rarely are things in total conflict. There's often alignment, but in most cases, you've got to find the alignment, search for the alignment and define the alignment if it's not presenting itself to you. What do I mean by that? So, you know, we're talking about values here because, you know, some people, when it comes to goals, people's values will, def- will determine their goals and the things that they go for. But when I work with an individual who's got um, issues around money, meaning that they're either not making enough or what they're making, they're not keeping, we look at the value of money and we go, okay, is money really a value? Now, if someone doesn't actually have money as a value, you know, there are these exercises you can do, which is called values repatternings, where you get people to essentially reassociate and readjust and create, take their value for money, for example, from number 10 and try and move it up to like number two or number three. Now, from my experience, it's very difficult to get people to change their values and to shift their values because that neurology is often running quite deep and quite long and quite, uh, quite connected. But whereas what you can do is you can create almost like a, um, a, um, uh, like an overpass of neurology whereby you create a new connection and you create an alignment. So say for example, if I'm trying to work with someone who's trying to make more money, but they clearly demonstrate no value towards money whatsoever. They don't make a lot of money, they treat money very badly. We, we ask the question, well, how do we make value, money more important? Well, we first, think, first thing we do is we look at what is actually already important. Okay, so what is already the goal? And then we ask, how is money gonna allow you to do what is already important to you at a higher level? So for example, you know, for, in most scenarios like this, people's number one value will be family, okay? And their number 20 value or 50 value would be money. So as a result, they have a great family life, but they have not a lot of money, okay? So they have great connections with their kids, but they're not able to necessarily afford to buy everything they want to for them. So one of the questions I ask them is, how is making more money, how is keeping more money, how is developing a better relationship with money gonna enable you to have a deeper, more fulfilling, more connected relationship with your family? Now, if you ask that question once, that might be slightly curious, it might even be slightly cliche, but if you ask that question 500 times, digging, searching, defining 500 different answers, what you now have is you have 500 new neural connections that didn't exist before that are now sitting in parallel to the existing value. So family still remains, the goal still remains the same, okay, but now we have this attachment to, okay, now I can see how I don't have to shift family from being number one, I can actually have more family value, more of my goal, by associating money with it. Now in the context of your goals, you've got to ask yourself the question, if your goals are in conflict, you've got to be looking at each other's goals and going, right, how is me achieving my goal going to allow you to achieve your goal? Now, if you sit there and look at it in a one-dimensional perspective, you're going to find it very difficult to answer that question. But if you can take a three-dimensional or a four-dimensional or even an eight-dimensional perspective, meaning if you can look at it from eight different perspectives, you're going to be able to find a whole raft of ways of how those values, those goals, I should say, actually do align, even if at first appearance they appear to be in complete conflict. Now, the challenge here is, that's the hard part. I can sit there and tell you, oh, they're all aligned. You've just got to ask the question, see the correlation, create as many connections as possible, and then joy will enter into your life. But the hard work is actually sitting down there and defining, uh, d- defining and creating the alignments between the goals, which is, okay, your number one goal might be to, I don't know, build a multi-billion dollar empire. But her number one goal might be to, you know, settle down, have kids and, you know, move to the country. So then you've got to ask yourself the question is, how is my goal going to help you achieve your goal? 
Okay, and how is your goal gonna help me achieve my goal? Well, I can tell you right now, if, you're able, if you're able to build a, a very successful business, you're gonna be able to potentially, if you do it the right way, move to the country and live in a beautiful manner with horses and cows and ducks and pigs and goats and maybe even a fucking chicken, okay? And you'll be able to do it in style. And by having your wife's goal, which is to settle down and have kids and move to the country, you've now got someone who's going to be looking after your back. You've got someone who's going to be looking after the home front. And by the way, I can tell you right now, when you're trying to build a multi-billion dollar empire, you want someone keeping the home fires burning. You want someone to come home to who's taking care of business at home. Those two goals appear to be in opposition, but they're actually completely aligned with the right perspective and a fluid, you know, a fluid and flexible nature to its approach. If you're so rigid in your approach that you can't see any other way than how it is, then you're already fucked. Okay, but what I've learned is, you know, a, a soft mind will bend. Okay, a hard mind will fracture. And your goal is to have be flexible and soft in your thinking and into your approach so that you don't clash and crash and smash and snap into one another. Sit on that for a little while. Have a little think about that one. Irfan Sulman. Irfan Sulman. Irfan Sulman. Sorry. Is it better to be a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big pond in the professional world? Uh, it's better to be the kind of fish that you want to be in the pond that you like to f- swim in, you know? Like, how do you answer that question? I've been thinking about that a lot because, you know, I've got so much demand right now in North America, you know, in, in the US, in Canada, in Asia, uh, and London, and Europe. And I often think about myself like, what would it be like for me to expand globally? And by the way, it's not that I'm just thinking about this. We've, you know, it's been a part of our plan for a very long time. But I do often question it on a very regular basis. Because when I consider the amount of work that's required to run a business at a national scale, and then I overlay that amount of work that's required to operate a business at an international scale, it's like your workload doesn't double. It almost like fucking quintuples. And then you start to ask yourself the question, so why am I doing this, right? What is the goal? Well, the goal for me is twofold. Number one, I want to do what it is that I love, right? I love to help people. That's what I'm here to do. But number two, let's not let's make no doubt, no doubt, let's make no fucking qualms about this. I am not a charity. I am a very commercial dude and I like to make money. Now, but please understand, the reason I like to make money is because it helps me do number one even better, okay? As you can see my, my fancy Gucci attire, I'm not someone who likes to make a lot of money so that I can wear fancy stuff. Although that may change in the future. I might get Gucci at some point. But what I do know is you've got to ask yourself the question, what is it that you love to do? What type of a fish are you? And what type of an environment do you actually like to swim in? Do you like being the big fish in a small pond, okay, being the number one competitor in an industry or the number one person in a city or the number one person in a suburb, the number one person in the country, okay? Or do you like to be someone who's constantly on the hunt, okay, who's constantly chasing, who's going after, who's, you know, fighting and scrapping their way up? Okay, do you like the idea of working five times harder in order to be a small fish in a big pond? Or do you like the idea of perhaps working 20% of the time that others would to be a big fish in an already small pond? And I can tell you right now, when we're talking that 20% or that five times, we're still talking a lot of fucking work, right? But my point is, it's got nothing to do with what I think and everything to do with what you want. What do you want to do and how do you want to do it? And if you can answer those questions, then you've found your answer and you don't need me to answer it for you. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. 19 Chris Roberts. 19 Chris Roberts. We've got lots of fancy names today. What's the best way to communicate a new lesson or skill to your employees to let them take it in and apply what you're trying to teach? Demonstrate it. Through two things. Number one, through vulnerability, through your own example, through your own failures where you discuss openly your own failures. And number two, through some kind of a challenge where you get them to experience what it is that you're trying to teach them. You know, uh, there's this old saying, if you, uh, I can't even remember what it is, but if you, 
uh, I can't even remember what it is. What is it? It's fucking. I don't know what it it's, is. If you show me. There's a great old saying, I don't know what it is, but if, you, if I could remember it, I'd tell you. But my point being, one of the things that I've learned is people learn far more, far better when they actually experience a lesson. And that's why to me, experiential training is so important. That's why we do Nail Art and Scarlet, to give people experiential lessons, okay, versus, you know, book lessons. Because anyone can tell you what to do. Anyone can give you a piece of advice. That's the easy part. Okay, anyone can share their experience, but when you show someone what to do, you share your experience with them, and then you give them the opportunity to execute on what you've just asked them to do in a, in a challenge-like safe environment, the learning potential is gonna skyrocket dramatically. And so for me, the way I like to impart lessons is through my own lessons, my own experience, but through challenges through defining leadership challenges. Like, you know, great example today, I had a team member come in here, I had to connect with, and um, you know, I asked the question, do you want to develop as a leader? She said, yes. Uh, so what do you think is one of your biggest challenges that's preventing you doing that? And we sat down and we worked out that one of the biggest challenges was she was quite introverted, quite shy. And so I gave her the challenge. And rather than saying to her, well, you need to get out and be more social. You need to be more extroverted. You need to connect with people. Any fucking idiot can say that, kind of give that kind of advice. I said, okay, here's what I want you to do. In the next two weeks, you have to find four people that you haven't connected with so far in this organization. And you have to take them out for coffee, buy them coffee, and find out four things about them that you never knew. Okay, which is going to be pretty easy because she didn't know him in the first place. And so what that is going to do is that is going to force her to get out of her comfort zone. It's going to force her to engage, force her to connect and give her the opportunity to develop the extroverted skills that are required in order to be a leader in all contexts. Because introversion is great as a reflective leader, but introversion it can actually be quite painful when you're actually trying to inspire and muster your team and, and get, uh, get their energy moving. Uh, so for me, I like to set challenges. Challenges work really well. And uh, yeah, it's a great way to impart a lesson. No greater, less, no greater teacher than experience, my friend. These are not the droids you're looking for. Do you come up with these quotes? No, that was from Star Wars. That was Obi-Wan Kenobi. Peter Lendrum, uh, I love planning, but have a hard time making the conscious initiative to follow it. Any process to someone having trouble sticking to a plan? Stick to the plan. Define, I think the biggest challenge for most people when it comes to sticking to the plan, look, it's probably a couple fold, but the first one is actually defining a plan that is aligned with what it is that you're here to do. So number one, do you know your purpose? Number two, have you defined what it is that you're trying to do long term, i.e. mission 10 years from now? But number three, have you then reverse engineered that plan in a practical way, looking at the priorities that need to be completed in order for you to get one step closer to that plan? And then are you deriving from those priorities on a weekly goal level, daily task level basis to make sure that your efforts are aligning strategically with strategic outcomes. See, the challenge for most people, the reason they don't stick to the plan is they wanna do what's exciting. They wanna do what's new. They wanna do what's loud. They wanna do what's making the most noise. They wanna do, they wanna put the fires out because sometimes it's a little bit more exciting than working the plan. But what you've gotta understand is you've got two, two perspectives here. You've got the strategic, strategic tactical focus and then you've got the day-to-day -day tactical focus. A strategic tactical focus is whereby a portion of your day, every single day, is dedicated to doing things that have strategic value. Meaning that what you're doing, there's, there's at least three tasks that you do a day that are, have a relationship with something that you're trying to do on a bigger level on a yearly basis, which has a relationship with something you're trying to do on a bigger level on a decade basis. That is a strategic task focus. A day-to-day -day task focus is focusing on the things that are easy that are loud, that are noisy, that make the most uh, 
make the most noise, that uh, create the most buzz, that, you know, that are most lit up. And those are the things that are the, the distractions. And so the reason that most people don't focus on their plan is because they're fucking looking for something that's easy. They're looking for a distraction. They've trained themselves to want to go towards the path of least resistance. Man, the path of least resistance will, will get, will, will, you, most people slide down the path of, path, most people slide down the path of least resistance into mediocrity. You know, you don't, you don't climb Everest by following the path of least resistance. You don't build an empire by following the path of least resistance. Fuck, that's hard to say five times. I think my, my tongue's all swollen. So my advice is the way that you stick to a plan is you stick to the fucking plan. You define the plan, okay? You create, you create the plan, you define the plan, you map out the plan, and then you fucking stick to it. It's as simple as that. How do you lose weight? You stick to a fucking diet, bro. How do you build beef? You stick to the fucking training, bro. Like, how do you build a relationship? You fucking, I don't know. <laughs> but my point is, I can't tell you how to stick to something unless you want to do it. If you want to do it bad enough, then you stick to the fucking plan. Stick to the plan, bro. Nice. Final question. Corey Atkinson, 87. When you uh, did drugs uh, when you were younger, what compelled you to stop? What do you mean when I was younger? Uh, I became addicted to amphetamines when I was 19. Uh, and I'm not going to say I was a victim of, of circumstance. I was, uh, it was my destiny. Um, it, was, it was fatalistic in nature because of all of the gifts and the benefits that have come. What was the question? How did I get off? Yeah, what compelled you to stop? Uh, what compelled me to stop was I placed a higher value on my life than I did on getting high. Uh, and that's not an easy thing to do when you're an addict because, you know, when you're an addict, and I was nine months in at this point, I wasn't like a 10-year heavy drug user. I was a hard drug user. I was using every day, multiple times most day. Amphetamines is a pretty nasty drug um, from a, an addiction perspective. But I started to realize that my life was actually starting to become unmanageable. You know, I started to realize that my life was actually starting to fall apart. I started to see my relationships you know, becoming, um, uns certain relationships were becoming unmanageable and certain relationships had degraded so far that they were becoming insalvageable. And I just started to see the people that I was hurting. And rather than putting my own needs, and this is very difficult for an addict to do, rather than putting my own needs front and center, which is what most addicts do, I started to consider the consequences. And I literally started to look at my life. What is my life gonna be like 20 years from now? If I continue going down this path, what is my life gonna look like 20 years from now? And I'll be honest with you, I didn't like what I saw. Uh, it was pretty fucking scary if I'm honest. But secondly, there was something inside me that knew that I was destined for more. Uh, there was something inside me that knew what I was doing right now, although it was an important part of my journey, wasn't gonna be my life journey. Although addiction is a lifelong journey, it's not something that you can go and get you are cured of. It's something that you will live with in, in, in a range of different expressions. It becomes a, you know, it, it's becoming conscious of, you know, compulsive behaviors in your nature towards doing things that feel good. And so it has not, it's not just to do with drugs, it's to do with anything that feels good, anything of a compulsive, uh, that can be of a compulsive nature to, that is easy to, to feel good. And so for me, I wouldn't give it up for the world, but what I do know is the world is the reason I gave it up. Um, because I knew that I had a, a bigger, bigger set of shoes to fill and I just, I just knew it wasn't going to end well, uh, and I focused on that heavily. And as a result, I, you know, I changed my group of friends. I went and got help. You know, thankfully, I didn't need to enter rehab. Um, you know, I, I got myself a, 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 a therapist. I started seeing a therapist, and I did a fucking lot of work. Um, and I'm still doing a lot of work, and that work will probably keep going until the day that I die. Um, but you've got to find a reason bigger, to, bigger not to use than to use. 
And it sounds so cliche, it sounds so easy, but it's not. It's actually really difficult. And I, and I had this conversation with a girl on a, on a party on a boat the other night, and she's like, the, the problem with addicts is they just, they just need to stop using. And it's like, if only you understood how fucking ridiculous that statement is. If, if addicts could just stop using, I guarantee you 99.999% of addicts would stop using, but they can't. And the reason they can't is because their brains are wired differently. It doesn't mean they can't ever. It just means it's very difficult. Okay, it's very hard. I'm not giving addicts permission to use, but what I am saying is we need a higher level of empathy here. We need a higher level of understanding. We need less judgment, more unconditional love, more acceptance, and more curiosity, you know, because that is going to be far more healing than shaming, guilting, and judging, you know, those whose behaviors aren't, are, are, you know, that are still not in check. So focus on something bigger than you. Why is it you're here? And maybe have a look at what's going to happen if your life continues in that direction for the next 10 or 20 years. Because I can guarantee you, here's what I know about addiction. It's a progressive condition, which means it only gets worse if it's left untreated. And it's often terminal. I'll leave you with that one. Ladies and gentlemen, that was episode 49. Fun fact about the number 49, it's the, it's the letters 4 and 9, which are numbers, actually put together in some kind of a serendipitous order to make 49. If you would like to have your question answered, hashtag HeyCohen, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, uh, smoke signals. I'm still waiting for someone to spray fake the stop sign out the front with the hashtag HeyCohen. Get me your questions in right now. Question of the day. What is the biggest reason you do what you do? Like when, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Why do you do what you do? I'm curious to know. Let me know. Till next time, say hi to your mum for me. Thanks for listening to Hey Kerwin. If you would like your questions answered, don't forget to use the hashtag Hey Kerwin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn.